My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. If it's about you making a difference, then it's about you, and and that won't ever work. You don't go to the margins to make a difference, but you go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different. Gregory Boyle is the founder of Homeboy Industries, the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. Father Greg, an American Roman Catholic priest of the Jesuit order, witnessed the devastating impact of gang violence on his Los Angeles community during the so-called Decade of Death that began in the late 1980s and peaked at 1,000 gang-related killings in 1992. In 1996, Father Boyle was appointed pastor of Dolores Mission Church, a Jesuit parish in the Boyle Heights neighborhood of East Los Angeles that was then the poorest Catholic church in the city. At the time, the church sat between two large public housing projects and amid the territories of numerous gangs. He is also the author of the 2010 New York Times bestseller, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion, and the 2017 Los Angeles Times bestseller, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Father Boyle has received the California Peace Prize and has been inducted into the California Hall of Fame. In 2014, the White House named him a champion of change. We are so pleased to be in conversation with Greg Boyle today. Father Greg, what is the story of how your outreach to gang members began when you were working at the Dolores Mission Church in East Los Angeles? Well, I mean, you know, the whole outreach to gang members started with um, the fact that we had all these junior high, middle school age gang members who had been given the boot from their homeschool and no one wanted them. So they were wreaking havoc in the projects in the middle of the day. You know, they were violent. They were writing on walls. They were selling drugs. So I walked out to them and I said, I don't know if I found a, a school that would take you would you go to it? And they all said yes. And, and then I couldn't find one. So we invented a school. You know, we I asked the nuns to move out of the convent and we turned the convent into a school for gang members. So that's sort of how it began, you know. And then they th- said, if only we had jobs. And we, uh, we marched, myself and the women in the parish, we marched around the factories trying to find felony-friendly employers. And we just couldn't find enough. We found some, but not enough. But then it was enemies working side by side with each other, which was challenging. In the early days, that was at the height of hostilities, you know, between all the gangs. That was really something. And in the beginning, it was only the eight gangs in in my parish, which always created a disconnect. If you had people working in the bakery or in one of our crews, you know, they'd go back to their neighborhood and, and they would say, how can you work with our enemies? You know, so... But you can't demonize people you know. So that created, uh, you know, enough of a disconnect where they said, I'm not going to hate these guys. I remember a, a kid was walking home from our headquarters after work. A carload of his own homies pulled up and said, hey, we'll give you a ride. And of course, rule number one is don't get in that car. But oh, well. So he gets in the car. And as they're driving down First Street, they see this guy, Josue. And they said, oh, that's so-and-so from such and such gang. And so let's pull over. And so they were going to do him harm. And the kid who got in the car, Anthony, said, no, don't kick back. That's my cousin, you know. And they said, really? That's your primo? And he said, yeah. 
he's my my mom's sister's son. And they went, okay. So then they pulled back into traffic. Well, he was no more his cousin than he was my cousin. So, I mean, <laughs> but because they were enemies, but they worked together. Right. And this guy, Anthony, didn't want any harm to come to him. And so I always ask myself, does that always happen? And, of course, it always does. There are no exceptions at all. All you have to do is to be in each other's vicinity, and then something like that happens. That story speaks to a theme you talk about often, which is kinship. Could you explain to us what the term kinship means to you? You know, once you discover that separation is an illusion, and so how do you obliterate the illusion that we're separate and that there is no us and them, there's just us, that somehow, especially in sort of... uh, in the Christian context, you have Jesus saying that you may be one. And so there's a, there's a sense that this is God's dream come true and that kinship and exquisite mutuality is, in fact, the only thing that will quench God's thirst. So you want to be a part of that. That's the whole goal. So you try to break all this stuff down. It's not just enemy gang members, but it's also, you know, the larger community who doesn't quite know yet that everyone's a whole lot more than the worst things they've ever done. And so so demonizing is always untruth, and it's always the opposite of who God is, and, and demonizing is the opposite of kinship. So we all belong to each other, and our problem is that we've forgotten that we have, that we've forgotten that we belong to each other. So how do we stand against forgetting that? And so that's what this place really is all about, really. That's a profound statement, that we need to remember that we belong to each other. Given that our communities are divided and fractured, there does seem to be a lot of evidence that we have forgotten that. You know, the scripture talks about kingdom of God, and, and you know, what does that mean? He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the here and now, and what does the here and now look like? It's It looks like there is no daylight that separates us. So even between, you know, service provider and service recipient, we, we don't even want that. There ought not to be any daylight that separates us. And so how do we, how do we find ourselves connected in tenderness with each other? And, and that's kind of the, that's the goal. You know, if you look at the things that matter, things that you want to focus on, like peace, justice, and equality, well, those things can never happen unless there's some undergirding sense that we belong to each other. Unless you know that you're in kinship, those other things are really they're not going to happen. So no kinship, no peace, no kinship, no justice, no kinship, no equality. It turns out that these are the byproducts of our efforts at kinship. So if you want those things to become a reality, then work for kinship, somehow foster it so that, you know, we can uh, um, widen the circle and then, and then ensure that nobody's standing outside the circle. In our work, we are often involved in serving listening or helping others. What could kinship teach us about serving others in our work? Well, you know, I think in the providing of a service, you know, I I learned this from a friendship with Cesar Chavez, where where somebody, a reporter commented to him and said, wow, you know, these farm workers, they sure love you. And he just shrugged and smiled and said, the feeling's mutual. And that's what you want. You know, we go quickly to service, which is fine. But service is the hallway that leads to the ballroom. You still want to get to the ballroom. That's the goal. And in in just about any kind of service providing, you know, and certainly in, in the medical profession, in the health field, people are providing a service, but they're, you know, 
you you want to bridge the distance that even exists there. You don't go to the margins to make a difference, but you go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different. And I think the same could be true in the health field that, yeah, you have a service and yes, you're providing health, but how do doctors allow patients to to reach you? You know, can you be reached by your patients? That's kind of what keeps burnout around here. You don't get depleted if you're delighting in the person in front of you. You don't get, you don't burn out if you're allowing yourself to be reached by people. But if it's if it's about you making a difference, then it's about you, and and that won't ever work. I think that's you know I don't know if that speaks uh, exactly to the medical profession, but it's it's a kind of a generic caution, you know. People want to keep a professional distance, you know, and boundaries. And, you know, you get that. I understand that to a certain extent, but it's also you want it to be you want it to be so mutual that people are inhabiting their own dignity and goodness in each other's presence. So it's not like I am going to bestow on you dignity and goodness. It's all there awaiting people to allow it to to be received. Could you offer us your picture of success and, and, and some of the concerns that you have around how it might be defined in service? Well, I, I, it's not a word I use, and, and yet it's hard in a, a nonprofit world. You know, you're always talking about uh, you know, data-driven outcomes. And uh, as I think I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, a Mother Teresa quote about we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. Faithful makes much more sense to me. I mean, that's what you want. You want to be able to be anchored in the right things and and to stay faithful to it. And then outcomes are somebody else's concern. But the minute you're driven by outcomes, you're going to be compelled to only work with those who will give you good outcomes. But the minute you don't care about outcomes, you just want to love being loving then watch what happens. You know, I mean, honest to God, things happen. Things come together. You've shifted your perspective. But, you know, if you're running and rushing after success, it becomes very limiting, you know. I've seen it sort of destroy organizations. Donors will say, "We we don't fund efforts, we fund outcomes. And I know that sounds very uh, sensible, and yet I think it's, exactly what's wrong. It doesn't mean you don't do research or have data or it just can't be your motivator. You have to say, here's an approach that we want to stay faithful to, and that's what we embrace. And the truth is that works, you know. You know, not everything that that works helps, but everything that helps works. And so you want to be faithful to the things that help. Because anybody can show you data and say, well, this really works. I go, yeah, but you may think it works. And you may even be able to do the algorithms that say, here's the math that says it works. I'm certain it doesn't help. You know, you want to do the things that, that actually profoundly help. And you want to stay faithful to exactly those things. Father Greg, what would be your advice to the next generation of leaders or colleagues who are inspired by your work? and also want to serve in their communities? 
Well, I, you know, I, I referenced this a little bit earlier, but it happened when I was at a at a uh, giving a talk in Houston, and there was a hardcore gang intervention worker, a former gang member himself, who was pleading with me after my talk, and he said, "How do you reach them?" and and I said, "Well, for starters, stop trying to reach them." You know, like even I, I go to a lot of universities, especially Jesuit universities, and there's a kind of a privilege paralysis. You know, pe- people, not just white privilege, but anybody who's in a university, even if they're kids of color, they just feel so privileged that they, they're, they're paralyzed. They don't move forward. That it, It's an odd thing. It's kind of a phenomenal thing where they just kind of say, well, who am I to go into that community? I go, no, turn privilege on its head. This is not about you saving the day or rescuing or fixing people. Then maybe you'd be right. But if you go to the margins and allow yourself to be reached by the people there, that's turning the whole thing on its head. And that would be my main advice. But, you know, people are always wanting to give back even. You know, these are all things that we are part of our lexicon, make a difference. A teacher brought her, her school, her class in here, and then she leaned into me. She said, tell them about how they can make their mark on society. And I said, no, you know. I don't want them to make a mark because then it's about them. I want them to be touched and marked by folks, you know, the widow, orphan, and the stranger, by the folks at the margins. That's where salvation is for us in our service, in our work, in the nonprofit world. You know, how can we allow ourselves to be touched, truly touched, you know, by people who have to carry more than I've ever had to carry and people for whom we can all stand in awe at what they've had to carry rather than in judgment at how they've carried it. So the humble stance looks at the poor and says, how, how can I help? And the, the stance of hubris says, here's what your problem is. You want to abandon all hubris and embrace allowing yourself to be reached. You know, can you receive people is, is the question I'd always ask. It's helpful the way you've articulated and compared humility versus hubris. What helps us stay out of hubris? Part of it is to be anchored in the present moment, but it's it's always a temptation to kind of, well, I'm going to fix this person, save this person, which is very controlling. And then you do the best you can, but there's something magical once you've decided to allow yourself to be reached by people. There's something that's sacred. When you say, I, I will receive who this person is, but it's hard to do. I, I'm not, I don't want to suggest that it's easy because you have to resist all these temptations to save the day. And I think saving lives is for the Coast Guard. I, I just don't believe in it. You just uh, do what you can do and you love being loving. And that has to be enough. You are certainly a person with a great sense of humor. What allows you to stay grounded in a daily routine that I'm sure is challenging? Well, a sense of humor helps. I mean, because things are always quite funny around here. And uh, if you're attuned to it, you know, if you're attuned to how, how people talk and how warm and affectionate and hilarious people are, you can't do it if you're anxious about what happened yesterday or if you're fretting about what will happen tomorrow, you really do have to stay completely anchored in this moment because otherwise you you miss it. And you, boy, you don't want to miss it because it's right in front of you. I think that's a key thing, especially it's a survival 
technique around here, but it's mainly hilarity. You know, it's mainly fall out of your chair laughing, especially here where toxic chronic stress finds some rest and relief. And then suddenly you're breathing in the spirit that delights in your being, and then you breathe it out into the world, and it's a good place to be. But people feel it as soon as they walk in. I had a, a couple last week who were on some kind of pilgrimage from, they were somewhere from the Midwest, and they got so emotional. They went on a, one of our tours here, and then they signed up to see me, and, and they came in, and, and they were just tearful. And the wife said, this place is the Sistine Chapel. And she just started to cry. Well, I knew exactly what she meant because there's a kind of a sacred thrill to the place, you know? You walk in and the joy is palpable. And then you look around and you know that everybody who works here has multiple, multiple gang rival enemies who will work alongside you. And yet it's an extraordinarily joyful place. For all that people have to carry, it's a pretty joyful place. The way you describe it, you know, I've never been there, but now I I, I, uh, I feel like I need to visit because, um, I mean, the question that, that comes to my mind is, how does that happen? Because that just doesn't happen everywhere. Well, I don't know. You know, we foster a, a community of tenderness, which is very connective tissue. You know, it's it's a way for people, otherwise love stays in your head or in your heart even. But unless it becomes tender, there's no connective tissue. So people are connected to each other. And we ritualize some of it in our like in our morning meeting every day or certain things that, that we do that brings us all back to our core of connection and tenderness. And, and around here, we feel like tenderness is the highest form of spiritual maturity. You, you know, you want to live out of that place where we can be reverent and soften the way we see each other and then get to a place where we're actually cherishing each other. Well, once people experience that, it, it, it's, people are positively giddy. You know, they're at a place where they, it's out of body joy. In fact, it's the hardest part about this place is that it's an 18 month training program. And if you move on after 18 months, we can bring other people in, but it's hard for folks to move on because this is home. Father Greg, who have been your mentors? Those who had the biggest influence on you and why? When I get asked that question, it's always the homies. And and people may not even buy that, you know, but it always has been. They've taught me everything of value. I've learned everything worth learning really, truly, positively from them every day. And that's the truth. You know, people, you know, always lock onto this uh, notion, you know, that it has to be some kind of wisdom figure or some older person. I mean, over the years, you know, from my parents to my, you know, people taught me or Jesuits who inspired me to, to enter the Jesuits. But, you know, for 33 years, walking with gang members, it, it has just filled me and taught me everything valuable. And that's the truth. As a person who serves and works in the community, what are the trends that you're seeing? What are you hearing from colleagues? What are you paying attention to now that may have been a little different than what you saw when you first began? Well, certainly the healing piece. I mean, because we're 31 years old as an organization, and it was somewhere in year 15 
that we said, you know, there's something not right, you know, because we were even had the T-shirts that said nothing stops a bullet like a job. No, healing is what, you know, relational wholeness, you know, these are the things that keep people from ever reoffending. And so that's why a lot of programs are, are, are about content. You know, what services do we provide? How do we deliver those services? What are the classes and, and the kind of things that we provide? We do that too. But context has, uh, is the predominant thing here, not content. And the context is a community of tenderness. And once they, once they kind of are, you know, involved in, in a community of tenderness that, that is really palpable, that somehow can provide them rest and uh, respite from their own stress, then you can deliver services. But I think that's, that's the secret sauce to Homeboy is, is the context, a community of love and tenderness where people feel welcomed. And that's where you begin. That's the hardest part. Otherwise, you become the DMV delivering services like anger management and parenting classes or even job training. We, we move so quickly to those things that it's hard for us to, uh, you know, understand that, that, you know, it has to be situated somewhere in this place. Otherwise, it's, it's superficial and shallow. Like you said earlier, maybe it's easier for us to feel that we can measure that success or, or we feel uh, a little more worth for ourselves when we do that other focus as opposed to a community tenderness. But it also, it also says that who they are is not enough. So let's give you these classes and let's bring you up to speed. And here's a bar and, and we'll keep raising it and you have to measure up. But we don't do that here. We're allergic to that. So we, we hold the, we don't hold the bar up. We hold the mirror up and we say, well, here's who you are. You are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. But then, then step back and watch them become that truth and inhabit that truth. And, and that's what you want to, to be able to tell them what you have is perfectly fine. What you have is enough. But because the world says they're not smart enough, they're not trained enough, they don't measure up. Oddly, you know, that kind of notion just reinforces all the stuff that you wouldn't want to. It's not about knowing their potential. It's about goodness, not potential. It's about, do you know your goodness? That's there. You don't have to become good. That's always been at the core of who you are. If you don't know, then, you know, then that's a different question. But, you know, you want to be able to get people to know their, their goodness. You know, the, the Buddhists always begin writings with, oh, nobly born, don't forget who you really are. And so that's what we want to do around this place. We are living in a time when we perceive our communities to be more tribal, having more polar disagreements. What could we be learning considering your experience, especially in a work environment where rival gangs are working together? Yeah, well, I think here, you know, Homeboy wants to be the front porch of the world that we all long to see. You know, we want to be what the world is eventually called to become, which is, again, a place where there is no us and them. That's kind of the hope here. You know, we're, we're not so much a solution as we're a sign. We're pointing beyond ourselves to a, um, you know, a different way of seeing and a different way of being. And, and it invites the world to, to be its best self, if you will. 
it's important to be a sign, especially in these tribal difficult times. As a way to end our episodes, we often ask our guest if they have a particular poem that's meaningful to them to share with us. Would you have such a poem that uh, you could share? As the poet Angie Dickinson said, I said that once, and of course only my generation knows who Angie Dickinson is, but um, it's actually Emily Dickinson. And she says, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul that sings the song without the words and never stops at all. Especially in these tribal times in which we live, we're so reliant on our ability of words to convince people of things. And that, that's because we're intent on winning the argument. But to sing the song without the words is, is really important. It, you know, it harkens back to St. Francis of Assisi, who says, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. But, but it's not about words. And it's not about taking the right stand on issues. It's about standing in the right place. And so that's what you hope for. And, and that's what the world could use right now is, is people living as though the truth were true and putting first things recognizably first and using as few words as possible. Appreciation to our guest, Father Greg Boyle, for joining us in conversation. Appreciation, as always, to you, our listeners. I'm Kevin Murphy. This is the Mission Innovation Podcast.